Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, jumping back here into Matthew's gospel. Matthew is writing the story of Jesus, the greatest story ever told, the story about the Son of God who left heaven and came to earth, born as a king to rule not just the people of Israel, but to rule the nations, that through this king, God would bring his rule and reign and his blessing to every people, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. God has been working since Adam fell in the garden to, to redeem mankind, to restore mankind back to his original purpose. Life is not meaningless. Life is not purposeless. We don't live in a universe that just blew up one day from nothing and here we are with no purpose, with no value, with no meaning. No, we live in a universe governed and created by God himself. Mankind created in God's image. Mankind deceived and led into sin and into rebellion against his creator. But God, who is rich in justice and love and mercy, sent his son to come and die for our sins, to redeem us back to himself, so that we might once again walk in fellowship and communion with our creator living under his rule, experiencing his blessing, extending his kingdom and his blessing to the nations. And you and I are a part of that. You and I are a part of that. We have experienced the blessing of God through his son, Jesus, and we're called to extend that blessing everywhere that we go. And so we're in this story. Matthew's telling us this story of, of Jesus coming into the world. The first few chapters outline his birth and his uh, entrance into ministry. Chapters 5 through 7, we looked at the, the teaching that Jesus gave on the Sermon on the Mount of, of what it looks like to live as part of the kingdom of God. And then chapters 8 and 9, as we finished out last year, showed us the, the miracles of Jesus, the power of Jesus. Jesus touching these people and healing them, setting them free of sickness and disease, and also scattered out through eight and nine these specific teachings that Jesus gave. And so that brings us here to chapter 10. And we're going to look here at the first 15 verses of chapter 10 this morning. This is a, an interesting chapter because it's Jesus giving directions to his apostles on the ministry that they were to do on behalf of him. And this morning, I know that you've sort of settled in this morning for a nice cozy sermon, but as we're about to read the word of God, I want to invite you to stand with me this morning. The reason we do this is because these words are not just any words. These words are, as the Westminster 
Catechism puts it, the lively oracles of God. So Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of God. Amen. You may be seated. So this chapter, chapter 10, it is an interesting chapter. The first part of my message this morning is going to be more informational. The second part today is going to have some more application for us. But I want to look at some information here, some background that I think is important, that is important for us to understand in the day and age in which we live. Chapter 9 had just concluded, you'll recall, with Jesus seeing the multitudes. He saw them and it says he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They had no one to care for them, no one to look after them, no one to feed them the word of God, no one to protect them from false teachers, from wolves as Jesus calls them. And so he had compassion upon these crowds because he, he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. And so he tells his disciples, chapter 9 concludes with him telling his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is everywhere. But the laborers are few. And we saw that just as that was true in Jesus' day, that's also true in our day. There's harvest everywhere. The harvest field is among us everywhere we go. Everywhere we go, we're surrounded by people who are like sheep without a shepherd. They do not know God. They do not know the word of God. They are ensnared by the lies of the enemy. They are open and exposed to the attacks of the enemy. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers 
are few. And so Jesus tells his disciples, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And just after that, he now commissions 12 of his disciples to be those laborers to go out into this harvest field. Here in this chapter, we see this commissioning of the 12 apostles into their ministry. This whole chapter is Jesus giving them instructions on what it would be like in their ministry for him. And as a part of that ministry that he has for these 12 apostles, he sends them out on a test run, if you will. We read in this chapter, Jesus is preparing them for their future ministry. Their future ministry which will take place after the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The apostles will have a, an important future ministry. And he gives them instructions on that in this chapter. But also, before that time comes, he sends them out on a test. He sends them out as part of their training while he's still with them, while he can still give them instructions. And so this chapter, chapter 10, it has instructions that pertain to that future ministry after Jesus will ascend, but also that pertain specific instructions to this test, to this trial, to this training Time that he has for them while he is still there. And so how do we know that some of this is for the future and how do we know that some of this is for that time there when they were? Well, let's look at some things that show us that this was a temporary assignment that he was sending them on. In verse 6, Jesus says, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, only go to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus here in this, this first initial trial run with his apostles, he says, this is for the Jews first. You're to go and to preach to the Jews. You're not to preach to the Gentiles. You're not to preach to the Samaritans who were half Jew, half Gentile. And we see this pattern even in Paul's life, the apostle that when he goes out, he goes to the Jew first before he goes to the Gentile. That There is a principle in, in the sense in which Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Jesus was brought forth from the lineage of Abraham. He comes forth through the nation of Israel. And therefore, the Jewish people had the right to first hear the good news. They had the right to first hear the good news. And so Jesus says, go not to the Gentiles, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. However, this is a temporary assignment because the final commission, the great commission, which takes place after the resurrection, is not just to the Jews, but it's to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so there are parts of this where it is a, a temporary assignment. In verse 10 also, he tells them not to take specific items, including a money bag, a staff, 
an extra change of clothes, an extra pair of sandals. He tells them not to take these things with them on this missions trip, if you will. But later on in the Gospel of Luke, he reminds them in Luke 22, he says, remember when I told you not to take these things? And they say yes. And then in Luke 22, he says, now, however, the one with a purse should take it and likewise a bag and the one without a sword should sell his cloak and buy one. And so he gives them further instructions saying that was for a temporary assignment. So we don't look at this and say, well, this passage says that God's ministers can't carry a wallet. And so if God's people ever have a wallet, then they're violating this command. No, this is a temporary command for this specific ministry. Also here it says you can't take an extra pair of sandals. So if you have more than one pair of sandals at home, you have to go and get rid of them. Well, no. This was, these are instructions for this temporary assignment. But he goes on to give them further instructions as we read further on in the chapter that transcends this specific assignment to their future assignment. We see that in verse 18. We won't have time to dwell on it this morning. But in verse 18, he starts to speak to them about their ministry to the Gentiles. That there will come a day where they're ministering not just to Jew, but also to Gentiles. He also goes on to speak about the persecution that they're going to endure. However, on this brief ministry journey, this trial run, this test, where there's no record of them enduring any persecution. However, after Jesus ascends into heaven in the book of Acts, we see that they endured great persecution. Why am I saying all of this? Well, there's certain things in here that pertain to the training exercise, but there's also principles in here that, that push forward even into our day for ministry that are applicable, that we can even apply by all who endeavor to live for Christ. And so there are certain things, again, the ministry to the Gentiles, the, the specific uh, ways in which they were to go about the ministry, that's confined to this specific test run as he's trained them a little bit, he's sending them out, they're going to step out in faith, trusting him in these areas, they're going to come back and bring a report to him. But then as he moves forward and as we get into the future weeks, we're, we're going to see principles that apply to all of us who endeavor to live for Christ. Now, three things I want to deal with here this morning from this text with that as a foundation. The first is this issue of who are the apostles? Who are the apostles? If you go back to verse 1 of chapter 10, it says that Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And then in verse 2, it tells us the names of the 12 apostles. You see, Jesus had many disciples. He had many disciples. The word disciple simply means follower. There were many, 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 many people who followed Christ. Thousands of people followed Christ. Multitudes followed him. 
You read about the story of him feeding the multitudes, the people that were following him. Those were his disciples. So he had disciples of of multitudes, of, of crowds. He had all kinds of people following him, all kinds of different disciples. And this is part of what uh, made the religious leaders so angry at Jesus was that they were jealous of him. The crowds were taken at his word. They were taken at his teaching. You'll recall at the end of Matthew 7, they said, no one has ever taught like this man before. Well, how do you think that made the rabbi, you know, next door feel? Well, it probably made him feel pretty bad. This rabbi, this teacher, he, he teaches like nobody. This is incredible. Thousands of people following Jesus, the multitudes filled with his disciples. But here in this passage, what Jesus is doing is out of those multitudes of disciples, he's singling out 12 of them and he's promoting them from disciple to apostle. And again, we see that here. It says, verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles are these. Now, the word apostle, while disciple simply means follower, the word apostle means one who is sent. One who is sent or sent one, we could use that terminology. And the apostles, these sent ones, were a group of ministers that Jesus personally selected and trained, hand-trained, for a specific ministry. The training that the apostles went through was much different than the training of the multitudes, the teaching of the multitudes. The training of the 12 apostles was different even, we read about a group of 70 people that Jesus sent out. But it is this inner circle that he has of these 12. We find these 12 the closest to him. We find these 12 on uh, the night before Jesus is betrayed where he shares the Last Supper with these 12. And here he's singling them out. He's, he's setting them apart. He's bestowing upon them this name of apostle. And then he's commissioning them and he's sending them. They are sent ones. Who are they sent by? They're sent by the Lord Jesus himself. Now in some senses, Jesus himself is the greatest and first apostle. As he was sent by the Father to the world. Jesus then will read later when he commissions his disciples, he says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So Jesus really is the, the first, if you will, apostle. But then Jesus gathers for himself and trains and commissions 12 specific People. So some points about the apostles. They were specific people. Here we read their names. There's 12 of them here. It's a select group of people. There's 12 of them. Judas, we know, it even tells us here, he betrays Christ. He goes after he betrays Christ and he commits suicide. 
Then in Acts chapter 1, we don't have time to turn there this morning, but in Acts chapter 1, Peter gathered with the 11 of them, Peter and the other 10, they gather together and they say, look, there's only 11 of us. There needs to be 12 of us. We need to replace Judas. And they go through this process of replacing Judas. Jesus picked 12 apostles. Where did he come up with that number? Were the, did there just happen to be 12 guys that he really liked? Well, it's the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus here is establishing his new Israel, if you will. His new beginning, his new covenant. And while there were 12 tribes of Israel, he himself calls to himself 12 apostles, 12 ministers. And you even read in the book of Revelation that the foundation of the New Jerusalem, the new uh, heavens and earth, are these 12, these uh, 24 foundation stones of the 12 tribes of Israel and the names of the 12 apostles. I want to submit to you that Judas's name is not one of those on those stones. So, so they knew they had to replace him. So these are 12 specific people. Secondly, they had, they had specific qualifications. We read about this also in Acts chapter 1 when Peter and the apostles are trying to select who the candidate should be who would replace Judas. They had specific qualifications. Uh, Peter had the qualification, they had the qualification that they had to be with us the whole time. They had to be with us from the time that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. They had to be with us when he was crucified. They had to see Jesus resurrected from the dead. They had to see all of the miracles and hear all of the teaching that he did because there are to be specific witnesses with a specific job. Therefore, they need to meet these qualifications, the most important of which is they had to have seen Jesus risen from the dead with their own eyes. And so they whittle it down to two candidates. They say, these are really good. Jesus, we can't tell who the, the best is. Therefore, since Lord, you're sovereign over all things, we will cast lots. And in that, we will let you choose the 12th apostle. So they were specific people. They had specific qualifications. They had to have seen all of the miracles, hear all of the teaching, and they had to have heard, seen Jesus risen from the dead, which does present an interesting question about the apostle to the Gentiles. Of course, we know the apostle Paul. And even Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he reflects on his own apostleship. And he says, I'm an apostle, but I sort of barely made it. He says, I'm, I'm least of all the apostles. He says, as one born out of time or untimely born, he says. He says, I'm least of the apostles because I, per I persecuted the church of God. But then he also says, I was the last one that Christ appeared to. I was the last one. 
Jesus hasn't appeared to anybody else. And what the Apostle Paul essentially is saying is he's not going to appear to anybody else. That Jesus himself appeared to me in the flesh. I saw him resurrected and he commissioned me to be his special messenger to the Gentiles. But even the Apostle Paul recognizes that he, though he is an apostle, he's not one of the twelve. That these twelve had a very specific category, that they were a very specific group of people that met a specific uh, number of qualifications. And then also, number three, the apostles have a very specific ministry. A very specific ministry. And this ministry was to, hear this, to establish the church. This was the ministry that God had commissioned the apostles to. Now I'm talking post-resurrection. They were establishing the church. And Paul even writes about this in Ephesians 2.20. He says that the, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the, the church is built, again, this foundation of the apostles, the 12 apostles, and the prophets referencing back to the Old Testament messengers of God. So the foundation for the church is the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And so these 12 played a unique role in laying the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. And God gave them unique power and unique authority to accomplish this mission. And once a foundation is laid, you don't continue to lay a foundation over and over and over again. The foundation for the church has been laid. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, the Old Testament prophets bearing witness, and the New Testament apostles bearing witness. And this is the foundation upon which Jesus builds his church today. Now, we today, we don't have apostles here today to give us the word of God because the word of God was written down for us and has been preserved for us. The Old Testament is the prophets, the New Testament written by the apostles. So in the word of God, we have the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And as the, as the church continues to be built upon this foundation, we continually return to the word of God. We heard about this over the past few weeks of this theme of reformation. Sola Scriptura, back to the source, back to the Word of God. This is our foundation because it's in the Word of God that we have the teaching of the prophets and the apostles, which means that there are, hear this, there are no more apostles today. There are no more apostles today. There were 12 apostles that Jesus' specific qualifications, specific training, Specific ministry, but there are no more apostles today. When the apostles died off, they did not get together and replace them 
like they did with Judas. We read about James being uh, martyred by King Herod in the book of Acts. James is not replaced. They don't say, okay, well, we got to keep 12 going. So let's get another one in here. No. There were 12 selected by Jesus, trained by Jesus, established the church, laid the foundation, preserved for us in the word of God. And there are no one, there's no one alive today that meets these apostolic qualifications. Now, are there those today who are sent and commissioned by God? Well, of course, of course. But we use the title of missionary to not confuse people with the apostles. If we called all of our missionaries apostles, though they are sent, amen, it would be very confusing for people because in people's minds, we would begin to put people on the same level and think that they had the same authority as the 12 apostles that Jesus commissioned. There are no more apostles, I would say capital A apostles Today, there were 12 specific names written here. One had to be replaced. Specific qualifications, specific ministry. But hear me, brothers and sisters, the foundation has been laid. The foundation has been laid. And the foundation, through the providence of God, has been preserved in the word of God. So that now everyone who claims to have any kind of message or any kind of word, call themselves an apostle, call themselves a prophet, whatever, nobody on earth today has any authority above this word. So there, there is no one with that apostolic authority governing the whole church today because Christ now governs his church through his word. So we should be very cautious of anyone claiming for himself the title of apostle. Now, they may simply be using it in the literal sense of, of one who is sent. And okay, all right, if that's, if that's how it's going to be, okay, that's fine. We see other people, even Barnabas in the New Testament, that title is applied to him in that way, saying Barnabas is one who has been sent. But they were not saying that Barnabas was one of the 12. That's where people get confused, and that's where things can become very destructive. When we place any man's word at the same level of authority as God's word. And there are many today who would go around and call themselves apostles and prophets. And we should be very cautious. And we should recognize that every word must be tested by the word of God. And we also must be aware that the enemy is subtle. And he is really, really good 
at taking the word and twisting it just a little bit. Doing so in such a subtle way that the vast majority of people would never even be able to tell or notice. Paul the Apostle also writes that the enemy has himself his own false apostles and his own false prophets who can even perform in the power of demonic spirits signs and wonders. So that even signs and wonders are not the litmus test for if someone is sent by Christ. The litmus test is their doctrine. The litmus test is their orthodoxy. Do they get Christ right? Do they get the gospel right? Do they preach the truth of the word of God? Because there are false prophets and false apostles who even in the power of demonic spirits can perform great signs and wonders to lead people astray. We need to be very cautious of anyone claiming the title of apostle for himself. I was at a conference once and Somebody came up to me, introduced themselves. Hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm apostle so-and-so. Gave me their business card. Said apostle on there. I said, wow. Well, tell me about your ministry. Well, I'm actually kind of between gigs right now. Oh, you, you don't pass, you do pastors somewhere? No. Do you plant churches? Well, no, not really. Okay, well, you're an apostle. Who sent you? And he just looked at me with this blank stare. I was just like, whatever. God bless you, sir. It's just, it, it, it's not helpful. It's not helpful. So if anyone is trying to use, claim the title, what they're trying to do is they're trying to boost their authority. They're trying to boost their credibility. They're trying to claim something for themselves, some sort of position over others, hear me, that they do not have. And hear me, if you have to rely on a title, you really don't have the authority. If you, if you have to cling to the title to get people to follow after you, you, you really don't have the authority. However, I do want to make sure I mention this, that God still does miracles today. God still does miracles today. Though we don't have the 12 apostles with us who had a, a, this incredible authority, we do have the Holy Spirit. And God does hear and answer our prayers. And God teaches us to pray and to pray in faith. And that he hears and that he answers our prayers. And so we don't have to go looking for some sort of guru or someone who has some sort of special revelation. We go straight to Jesus the source. I don't need an audience with so-and-so or so-and-so. I can go straight to the throne room of God. There's one mediator. And it's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so, yes, there are still miracles done today. But man, if I could just grab the hem of his garment by faith. God is the healer. God is the healer. Well, that was my first point. Let me, um, if you'll bear with me a moment, let me move through these next two quickly. I, I, hope, you, I hope you can see why this is important. Because there are many today who claim to be apostles and are not. 
and I don't want you to be led astray by false teachers. I'm not, I'm not saying that everyone who claims, or who has that in their title is a false teacher. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying it's a little bizarre. I am saying it lacks a little bit of humility. I am saying I would never allow anybody to put that title on me because I would want to make sure I'm not being confusing to people on the ministry that God has given me. That's all I'm saying. Secondly, verse 8, he tells them, as he commissioned them, he says, you received without pay, give without pay. This is worded other places, freely you have received, freely give. He commissions his disciples, his apostles to go out and to do this ministry. And they're not to charge a fee. Gospel ministers are not to charge for their ministry. Why? Because we have received freely from Christ, we give freely to you. True gospel ministers do not charge a fee for our religious services. You are not charged admission on your way in here this morning. Can you imagine if you walked into the lobby of the church and there was a menu, a price sheet for you could order these religious services for this amount of money? Need prayer? That'll be $10. You want a special blessing for your cat or your dog or come pray over whatever? That'll be $30. Biblical counseling on a specific situation? $50. It's ridiculous. $300 for exorcisms. <laughs> it's wild to even think about. No, we do not charge for ministry. Freely we have received, freely give. We do not withhold ministry on the basis of anybody's financial status or ability to give. We will minister to anyone and everyone the Lord brings to us. So ministers don't charge for their services. Freely we have received, freely give. But yet in verse 9 and 10, look at this. He says, this is on your way out. He says, don't take gold or silver or copper for your belts. Don't take a bunch of money with you. Nor a bag for your journey, nor two, tunic, two tunics. Don't take a change of clothes nor an extra pair of sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food, or a worker is worthy of his hire. So ministers are not to charge for their ministry. However, in verse 9 and 10, Jesus does say that the minister's needs are to be met by and through his ministry work. So he says, don't take along this stuff because your needs are going to be met through those that you minister to. So you don't charge, you don't show up and say, here's my list of things I'll do for you and here's how much it's going to cost you. But those who receive ministry from you, he says, will give to you so that your needs will be met. 
The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, I'm going to turn over there quickly. In 1 Corinthians 9, he teaches about this. He's teaching this Corinthian church who was very stingy about giving and about supporting those who were in ministry. And in 1 Corinthians 9, he's teaching them on this. And here we see in verse, starting in verse 6, he says, Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without expecting to eat any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? He says, do I say these things on human authority? No, does not the law say the same? So now he references back to the law of God given by Moses. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. What that means is the, the, a beast of burden has to carry a heavy load and as it's grinding at the millstone, there would be grain that would fall down. The, the wheat and the chaff would be separated. And what people would try to do to maximize their profits is they would put a muzzle over the ox so that the ox couldn't even get any of the produce of the, the, of the result of its hard work and labor. And so writing to God's people in ancient Israel... God's giving them instructions on how to care for their animals, saying, that's harsh treatment, that's cruel. Don't treat an ox that way. And then Paul, drawing upon that, he says, is it for oxen only that God is concerned? Does God only care about oxen? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? Speaking of ministers. He says it was written for our sake because the plowmen should plow in hope that the thresher and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? So here the Apostle Paul is, is teaching them, and he even, he even goes on, he says, we haven't made use of this right. He says, we didn't make use of it in verse 12 because we didn't want to put a stumbling block in front of you. He's saying, basically, I knew how immature you were and how stingy you were. And I knew if I taught you to give that you would think that I was in it for the money, so I didn't do that. And he even talks about how he was supported from other churches, specifically implanting the Corinthian church because of their immaturity level. But in verse 13, he says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service, get their food from the temple? The priests, the Levites who serve in the temple. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. What's he quoting? He's quoting back this passage here. That the worker is worthy of his hire. Don't, you don't need to take a bunch of money for your job, for, for this missions trip, because the, your needs are going to be met by the people that minister to you. Don't charge. Don't, don't have fees. Minister freely. Give out freely. Pray for everyone. 
Heal everyone. Do ministry for everyone. Proclaim the word of God to everyone. And through those whose lives are changed and touched, your needs will be met. This is the pattern of gospel ministry. This is the purpose uh, at a local church of the tithes and the offerings. This is one of the purposes. This is how the needs of those who are ministering to the flock are met. And then finally, the third thing I wanted to show you this morning, and honestly I think is the most important thing, and I've done a terrible job of managing my time this morning. Welcome to Christ is King Church. The last two verses of this passage. Verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. That's a, a sign, a public sign of judgment. That, that what you have done, what they had done by rejecting the apostles, therefore rejecting Christ, therefore rejecting God, was, was so serious that I'm not even going to carry your dust with me. I'm going to shake it off my feet. And he goes on to say, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is a sobering statement. We look at the judgment that was brought upon Sodom and Gomorrah for their wicked and evil sin. We see that in the book of Genesis where God rained down upon that city fire and brimstone from heaven and wiped it off the face of the earth. But he says that that city that endured that much judgment on that day in time, those people for their sins have in front of them another day of judgment. Another day of judgment. But he says that on that future day of judgment, standing before the throne of God, that those who reject Christ by rejecting the apostles' message, that their punishment, their judgment will be even more severe than the judgment that awaits the wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus said this, the one who hears you hears me, speaking to his apostles, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. To reject the apostles' message is to reject Christ. To reject Christ is to reject the Father who sent him. And this here, hear me this, this here is the unforgivable sin that is mentioned in Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus calls this sin the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is to bring people to Christ, to open their eyes, to convict their hearts of sin. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Therefore, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to harden your heart under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And instead of obeying the, the, the voice of the Spirit that would lead you to Christ, you shut your eyes, you shut your ears from hearing the gospel, you harden your heart, and you turn away from Christ. That is the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin. There is no forgiveness for that sin. Because only faith in Christ, through faith in Christ, do we receive forgiveness of sins. Any other sin, every other sin, can be and has been forgiven. So whatever you have done in your life, if you will turn to Christ and look to his cross and appropriate his work for you by faith and receive him to yourself, you will receive the forgiveness of sins. You will receive his work of atonement on your behalf. But if you harden your heart in unbelief, rejecting the Son of God, rejecting, blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, there remains no forgiveness for sin. Now, if you've worried that you've committed that sin, if you're concerned about that, if that's a great concern to you, let me tell you something. If you're worried about it, you haven't done it. Because if, if that was you, you wouldn't care. You wouldn't care. If you care, it shows you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If you're worried about it, it's because you love God and you love Christ. And you can't imagine an eternity separated from him. No, the, the people we're talking about is people who hate Christ, who reject Christ, who want nothing to do with Christ. They harden their hearts under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. There is no repentance. There is no uh, forgiveness for that sin. If you say, well, I've done that in the past, repent of it today and you will receive forgiveness. And if you can repent of that, it's because you haven't even committed it. Hear me in this. It's hard, your heart is not hardened to the point where you can't look to Christ in faith. If you're worried you've committed the unforgivable sin, you haven't. Your worry of it shows your love for Christ. Turn to Christ in faith and receive forgiveness from all of your sins. But for those who reject Christ, and this is the sobering thing, for those who reject Christ and the free gift of God's grace, there is a day of judgment coming. Listen, this, these, this is the words of Christ. This, these are the words in red. These are Jesus' words. Jesus says, for those who reject you, they reject me, they reject the one who sent me, and it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, for that town. Hear me, there is a day of judgment coming where God will judge evil. Hell is real. It is a reality. Jesus teaches upon it. In fact, uh, as Bobby Sayer mentioned last Sunday night, the majority, the vast majority of our doctrine of hell comes from the mouth of Jesus himself because he himself is the one who is most acquainted with it. 
the eternal conscious torment that is promised to those who reject Christ is a reality. And for all those who harden their hearts in unbelief, this is the day that awaits them. And so for us here today, we must cast ourselves, our hope fully upon Christ. He is our only hope of salvation. He is the only one who paid the price for our sin. He is the only hope that we have of being reconciled to God. He is the one because God loved us. He sent his son to die for us. And upon the cross, he poured out hell itself upon Christ. Endured the punishment of the Father on our behalf. What we rightfully earned, Christ took upon himself because of his great love for us. And so we must dispel of any notion of our own righteousness, our own goodness, that we could approach God or on, our, on our own merit or our own good works, our own righteousness, filthy rags. We must forsake those that we might lay hold of by faith the righteousness of Christ. And this free gift of grace is available to all who will forsake sin and call upon the name of the Lord. It's available for all who will repent and who will trust in Christ. You can know that your eternity is secure. You can know where you are going on that day of judgment. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ. And you will have your sins forgiven. You will be filled with the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. You will be given power and victory over sin to live a righteous and a holy life. And you will share in the inheritance of the saints in the hope of glory that we're all waiting for and looking for. Let us trust upon Christ today. Let us not trust in ourselves. Let us trust solely in him. Amen.